Hi everyone, this is Twisted Travel and True Crime, and today you better wrap yourselves up in something warm and grab a nice warm drink, because we're going to the frozen realm of Rangel Island, a desolate landscape where survival dances on a razor's edge. Amidst the howling arctic winds and the snow-covered expanse, Ada Blackjack's gripping saga unfolds, a tale of endurance, courage, and a spirit that defied the merciless cold. At eight years old, Ada Delatuck, her younger sisters, and her father were at home in the very remote village of Spruce Creek, Alaska. She had been born there, and for eight years it was the only home she had known. Her mother was away at the moment, leaving Dad in charge, but things weren't going well. Her father had eaten meat that was too old and had gotten sick from food poisoning. He was dying. Ada and one of her sisters dressed him in pants, put on his boots and parky, as Ada called it. They wrapped him in animal skins and somehow tied him to a sled, hitching the dogs up, and began the freezing cold 30-mile drive to Nome. It was a very dangerous trip for two little girls, but they had no choice. They needed help and they needed it now. They don't know how far they traveled before they realized that their father was dead. Defeated and heartbroken, they decided they should return home and wait for their mom. Imagine having to make life-or-death choices at eight years old and having to live with the consequences. Many might think that this was the hardest moment in Ada's life, but alas, Ada wasn't destined for a life of ease. She was born in 1898, the same year the Alaskan gold rush began. Thousands of people converged in the nearest town of Salmon in search of gold. It brought quick progress in the form of several saloons. I was tempted to call them bars, but... Let's stick with the old-timey feel for this episode. It also brought a post office and a railroad that saw more action than the saloon girls. Along with the growth and progress, the visitors also brought the flu. By 1918, out of the 1,000 indigenous Eskimos, only 300 survived. Ada was one of the lucky ones, if you can call her that. After her father died, her mother wasn't able to care for all of her children, so she sent Ada to Nome, where she was taken in by Methodist missionaries who taught her how to read and write in English up to a third-grade level. She also learned to cook white man's food, her words, not mine, as well as cleaning, washing, ironing, and sewing. Sewing was particularly important in the education of an Eskimo girl because the skill and the clothing produced was absolutely critical to survival in the cold temperatures. This education was great in many ways, but it lacked in tradition, things like hunting, trapping, and shelter building. She had become what some might call a city Eskimo. As an adult, Ada was a tiny woman, not even five feet tall, with an olive complexion and beautiful straight blue-black hair. She liked to dress in nice clothes and hats, which was a challenge due to her rather small income as a seamstress. On the plus side, she often fit in children's clothing. She presented herself as dignified but shy and private, but those who became friends with her thought she was charming. She held tight to the memories she had as a young girl, the stories her mother had told her, like the Milky Way being the trails left by old women who wandered the heavens, and that when the handle of the Big Dipper was bright, there would be good hunting. She also knew that the biggest thing to fear in the North was the polar bear. She knew Nanak of the North was the top predator, and would kill people to take their souls with him to the afterlife. 
At sixteen, she married a hunter and dog musher named Jack Blackjack and took his last name. But by the age of twenty-three, she was divorced. In the Eskimo tradition, most men and women chose each other without any formal ceremony, so divorcing was fairly easy. If you were tired of your spouse, you just left or traded spouses, and that was that. And that seems to be what Ada's husband did. When he left, Ada didn't have anything besides her son. She had borne three children, but only one, her five-year-old son named Bennett, survived. But he was sickly. They had no choice but to move in with Ada's mother. So she and Bennett walked the 40 miles from her home to her mother's. This was a challenge in itself, but once in Nome, she realized she couldn't afford to support her son. He had tuberculosis and was fragile. She couldn't care for him as well as cook, clean, and sew for an income. He needed the care of doctors and nurses. Ada was forced to bring him to a home where he could be cared for properly. She missed him very much and vowed that she would do whatever it took to be able to bring him home again. This was how she was feeling when in September of 1921, Ada signed on as a seamstress for a group of men who were determined to explore and claim Wrangell Island for the British. Originally, the leader of the expedition a Canadian explorer named Wilhelmer Stephenson. He wanted to claim the island for Canada, but the Canadian government wasn't all that interested and wouldn't support the endeavor, so he pivoted and decided he'd claim it for Great Britain. They weren't really interested either. The island wasn't appealing. It was cold, bleak, and very hard to reach, but Stephenson was committed to his cause and likely the money he would make. You see, once someone lived on the island for two years, the rights to the island could be sold. Wrangell Island's pretty big, almost 3,000 square miles. He could have made a pretty penny. If Stephenson funded this trip and was successful, he'd essentially own the island. Fundraising was harder than he expected, and with less money than he hoped for, he cobbled together a small group of men who lacked any experience on the terrain and the lifestyle they'd have to lead while on the island. The plan was that the group would live on the island for two years, but they'd be given six months' worth of supplies. A supply ship would bring more supplies after the first year. Stephenson knew he needed indigenous people to help with the expedition and ensure the survival of everyone. Ada would receive $50 a month for her work with the team, and that was a huge sum of money for her. After two years, she'd be able to bring her son home, and she thought she'd be rich in comparison to her life currently. She just had to survive those pesky polar bears. Stephenson was charismatic and foolhardy. In his day, he was a bit of a celebrity, so he would get his way, but at what cost? His young crew consisted of a man named Fred Moore, who was 28, Lorne Knight, also 28, Alan Crawford, 20, and Milton Gale, 19. Ada was 23 and the only female. The good news was, there was a cat named Vic who came along for the ride. According to Stephenson's journal, he wrote, In an undertaking such as that of Wrangell Island, Eskimos are almost as necessary as boats or weapons. Not that they are wanted for hunting, for almost any white man can soon become as good as a hunter as the average Eskimo, but their women are needed to sew clothes and keep them in repairs. He also wrote that it is the testimony of many experts who have examined Eskimo sewing that it is unequaled in the world. 
he states that seamstresses such as these we need so badly that we are willing to engage, along with them, comparatively useless husbands and several children. Ada set sail on September 21, 1921, on a boat called the Silver Wave. Along the way, they planned to stop by one more port to buy an Eskimo canoe made of skins that could easily traverse the sea and floating ice and snow. At that final stop, they'd also hire the last of their Eskimo crew. The Eskimos they wanted to hire laughed at them and said there was no way they'd spend the winter on Wrangell Island. The Eskimos had realized they were dealing with a bunch of inexperienced and snobbish foreigners who had no idea what they were doing. They didn't have the right equipment or supplies, and frankly, the Eskimos feared that they would become food for the white men. Instead of going on the expedition, they decided to take advantage of these rich white men. They upped their prices on items, which used up much of the expedition's funds. Instead of a skin canoe specifically designed to make it through the water and ice, the expeditioners ended up buying a small, shallow wooden dinghy, and they decided that Ada was really the only Eskimo they needed. That wasn't the only surprise. At the last minute, Stephenson came clean, telling them that, unfortunately, he couldn't come with them after all. You know, there was just too much work back at the office but he promised he'd visit them the next year and bring all those supplies they would need. He said his lame goodbyes, and soon after the ship set sail. After a few days, the crew saw the outline of Rangel Island on the horizon. The first thing the men did when they reached the shore was fly the British flag, claiming the island for Britain. Ada walked to the shoreline alone and cried her eyes out. The recent changes severely distressed Ada. At first, she did her best to hide her tears from the four men, who she felt she had to care for almost as if they were husbands. At least family. One in particular had caught her eye while on the ship, though. A young man named Alan Crawford. He was 20, and he was a quiet man with a goofy smile. She felt he was the kindest to her, and she felt she needed his protection. She had set her sights on him. She needed his protection, she needed an ally, and a friend in her corner. Some people believed that maybe they had a romantic relationship for a short time, but there was nothing in either Ada's journal or the other men's journals to confirm this. Either way, the relationship seemed to be one-sided. Alan Crawford was not interested in a relationship with Ada. After only a few weeks on the island, Lorne Knight, who became the unofficial leader of the group, wrote the following in his journal. A few minutes ago, Ada asked me to get my rifle ready and when she sleeps to kill her, and in the next breath she asks us to save her life and not let anyone harm her. This happens half a dozen times a day. The main trouble seems to be an infatuation for Crawford. She wants him to marry her and says hysterically that she would die for him. We treat her as nice as can be, and one minute her spells look like a sham and the next real. Over the next few weeks, he describes how Ada, who he condescendingly refers to as the seamstress, works either too slow or not at all. He says she refuses to talk, and when she does, she's hysterical. For the men, things were looking really good for the first few months. The team mapped the island, collected specimens, built storage shelters, and fortified their supplies. They spent their evenings leisurely, reading and gambling. The six months of supplies seemed like it would last forever. There was plenty of game on the island. 
including polar bears, who Ada continued to be terrified of. There were no trees on the island, but there was a never-ending supply of driftwood. With it, they built the frame of a house against a steep hill using the sheer side of the bank as one of the walls. When it began to snow, they would cover the three wood sides with blocks of snow to keep out the wind and cold. The floor was made of split logs, and the roof was made of sod. For extra protection, they pitched two of their tents inside the home. The four men slept in one tent, and Ada slept in the other, which doubled as the kitchen. They put wood-burning stoves in each tent, with the chimneys extending through the roof of the house. In November, after nearly two months on the island, Knight wrote, The seamstress just refused to patch a pair of boots today, so I tied her to the flagpole until she promised to repair them. Kindness failed to accelerate her. I'm trying out some more forceful means. This seemed to work. Going forward, Ada was slightly more agreeable to her work, but she and Knight never got along. After being turned away many times, Ada had also come to realize that Crawford wasn't the man for her. This depressed her further. She'd often lay in her sleeping bag and cry, not wanting to get up to do her work. Knight believed that she was mentally ill, hysterical in his words, but one thing was certain, and that was that she was very homesick. She would write that she was afraid of Knight. She saw him sharpening his knife, and while he did it, he stared at her with a scowl on his face. She tried her best to stay out of his way. As autumn waned, the men built a winter hut and began to take hunting more seriously. Unable to reach the seals that lounged on the ice floes and unsuccessful in trapping the numerous arctic foxes, they concentrated on the polar bears, even though the numbers were diminishing. It was now dark all the time, and Ada was alone, deathly afraid of the bears and unbearably isolated. The island was colder than Nome, and all Ada wanted was to return to the topsy-turvy world of the city. Then seemingly, without any apparent reason, she was better. It happened in the middle of December. Knight told her once again she must work if she was going to stay in the warmer winter house. If she didn't, she'd be kicked out and she'd have to sleep in one of the supply sheds. So soon she was working hard, cooking, sewing, and cleaning. She became part of the team, seemingly in an instant. At this time, too, she became friends with Gale, who was the most kind to her. Yet she was still discriminated against and looked down on. In Knight's diary, he almost exclusively refers to her as the woman. She was teased in a way that confirmed the sense of superiority the men held over her. The winter of 1921 to 1922 was a fairly quiet time for the five occupants of the hut on the beach. The northern camp had been closed, the hunting was slow, and the weather was often stormy and always bitterly cold. The sun's appearance in January did little to raise the group's spirits, and the temperature stayed consistently below zero. Game was still scarce in April, but finally the sun warmed the air, and the group began to anticipate the arrival of the relief ship in summer. Their supplies were getting really low. They had moved to a new camp in May, but with the game failing to show for reasons they couldn't understand, and the seals remaining unreachable and far from shore, they all began to talk lovingly of home. Their diet, except for when they were lucky enough to procure game, was reduced to rice and bread. They shared homesickness as well as the food that remained. None of them were competent hunters, 
a reality that Stephenson had apparently not known of or simply ignored. They took poor shots at the fat geese that flew overhead. The geese, on the other hand, celebrated their bad aim. Without a skin canoe that could traverse the water and ice, they had a little luck in killing the offshore seals. Their little wooden dinghy had to be abandoned after they had shot a huge walrus, then tried to retrieve it. The boat simply wouldn't move through the thick ice. They couldn't get the boat and the walrus back to shore. A fully grown walrus can weigh upwards of a thousand pounds, and after hours of the men trying to get the boat to shore, they gave up and carefully walked across the rest of the ice with a measly fifty pounds of meat on their backs. That was only enough to feed the men and the dogs for a day or two. Although the sun rose higher in the sky, the weather stayed cold, and by June the sea was still iced over. While this was discouraging, the five still hoped for the ship. Surely it was just a little delay, they thought, but months went by. Maybe they had to rescue someone along the way. Undoubtedly, the boat would arrive before the holidays. It took far too long before reality began to set in. The group had to begin rationing their food, knowing that if a miracle didn't happen, they wouldn't make it through the winter. They grew thinner, more haggard. Ada attempted fishing without success, and the hunting remained slow. Although they still had some supplies, unrelenting hunger was becoming a new reality. Lauren Knight appeared the most weakened, but all were subject to various aches and injuries. They didn't know, they couldn't know, that back home the planning of a relief mission had gone very slowly. Since the original funding of the expedition had been hard to arrange a year before, it was difficult to know what made Stephenson believe that sources for a relief mission would be easier. He had worked hard to provide money for supplies, but the money had run short, and by the middle of June, the plans for a supply ship that year were in jeopardy. Contacted regularly by the men's families, Stephenson still proclaimed that all was fine, that the explorers could easily survive another year. The family's pressure, and maybe his own guilt, motivated him enough that he was able to squeeze some money from the Canadian government and the rest from personal supporters and friends. It was just enough for a relief ship. He hired Joe Bernard, captain of the schooner The Teddy Bear. But it was late in the season when The Teddy Bear finally left port. And that summer was considered by navigators to have been one of the iciest in 25 years. On August 20th, 1922, the ship departed from Nome with a fresh group of colonists on board, supplies and a year's worth of mail for the group on Wrangell Island. Captain Bernard had an extra incentive, bonus pay if he reached the island. The ship made its way to East Cape in Siberia, where the captain was warned again of the extent of the ice, which within a few days he would be able to verify for himself. Heading west, the teddy bear skirted the ice pack while the captain and crew continued to hope for favorable southern winds that would open a path to the north. Whenever the wind shifted in that direction, however, the teddy bear would be pushed against the coast, hemmed in by ice. The ice was closing in on them like a zipper on a coat. Bernard and his crew reached Cape Vencarum, a point on the extreme northeast coast of Russia. 
There, they only learned that the ice was worse to the west, and several ships had been trapped, frozen in place. Wanting to avoid the same fate, Bernard turned around and headed east for a while, before he attempted to work his way north. He was forced to plow through ice, which was dangerous, especially if the ice became any thicker. As they inched forward, the crew would be surprised to hear a loud screeching sound, and then what sounded like a thunderous crack. They were afraid that the ship had hit an iceberg, but luckily that wasn't the problem. Instead, the ship's propeller had been damaged when it hit ice. It was somewhat repairable. The continued attempt to enter the ice was a losing battle. By the second week of September, with the propeller barely functional, the entire crew was ready to abandon the attempt. On September 22nd, the teddy bear was back in Nome. Captain Bernard was at first criticized for his efforts, but after reading his reports, it was clear that he was a methodical, practical, and brave man who reported conditions and his ability to deal with them from an experienced viewpoint. He had relied on the opinions of other captains, too, the locals who knew the waters the best. As Bernard steamed home on Rangel Island, the five colonists had abandoned any hope of a relief ship that year. The temperature was dropping, the ice thickening. No ship of that era was a match for the onset of early winter. Yet, while Ada and her companions prepared for what could only be a desperate winter that year, in the comfort of his home in the U.S., Stephenson proclaimed there was no need to worry. The island was just an ordinary place, where living was no more difficult than being in a city at much lower latitudes. He even compared the expedition to that of Robinson Crusoe, which is a made-up story about a man being stranded on a Caribbean island. Totally different. Yet the hard reality was that he had sent people with little aptitude for hunting, and more importantly, with expectations of supplies to be delivered to a cold, desolate island. The island's 2,900 square miles are believed to have been the home to the last of the woolly mammoths who thrived in the cold, but they were trapped there because of rising water. The woolly mammoths likely died from inbreeding, but I digress. This expectation of a supply ship had influenced the group. They hadn't worked as hard as they should have towards provisioning for winter. The man who demanded his meat be cooked until very well done was beginning to show signs of illness. This was Lorne Knight, the man who continued to be rude to Ada and the one who she was most scared of. Earlier in the year, Knight had made a trip by himself, southeast along the shore, taking a dog with him. He wanted to live off the land and travel as far as he could. He reached a river, which he crossed easily because the shoreline was clogged with ice. But for some reason, he hadn't taken a tent on this trip. As luck would have it, it began to rain, and he and the dog huddled together for warmth. He encountered little game and decided to start back towards camp when the rain subsided. Cold and exhausted, he wandered off course, and upon reaching the river for the second time, he discovered that it was running higher than it had a few days before. He and the dog, who were already very cold, were forced to enter the icy waters. They collapsed with exhaustion on the other side. After taking some time to try to warm up, the dog and Knight shivered their way back to the main camp. 
Once there, Knight said he was feeling fine, but he wasn't fine at all. The trip had robbed him of much of his strength and may have contributed to the illness that was soon to follow. The dog had also gone lame. You see, Knight had been suffering from scurvy for more than a month. He had eaten no fruit or vegetables and no fresh meat. He suffered hip pains, gum swelling, and loose teeth, all symptoms of the disease, but he kept quiet about it at the time. When the sun sank below the horizon in November, the group moved to their winter camp, lugging the sled over rough terrain capped with thin ice. The temperature was below zero. The bears were absent, and the seals were still too far off to be hunted. Reduced to eating walrus skin and bread, hunger inspired plans for a journey across the ice, all the way to Siberia. The supplies they had brought were clearly insufficient for another year. The game was inconsistent, and the early winter was proving to be especially brutal. It was about this time that Knight told Crawford that he was possibly suffering from scurvy. Ada apparently overheard this comment. But even with the sickness, Knight planned a trip for himself and Crawford. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days In, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. By the time they celebrated their second Christmas... The meal was noticeably lacking in fresh meat. They were in a new snow house, and Knight had decided he was going to cross the 50 miles of ice on foot, or rather, on sled. He began preparations in earnest. Certainly, the concern over sufficient food supplies was utmost in everyone's mind, but this wasn't the only reason that Knight decided to leave the island. He wanted to communicate with the outside world, to contact Stephenson and report their status. They believed that Stephenson would be in Alaska. Knight estimated it would take 60 or 70 days to reach Nome. What made him think he could undertake such a journey in his weakened state is a mystery, or perhaps hunger did the thinking for him. He, along with the others, were becoming desperate. The temperatures were far below zero, but the men didn't know if the ice was solid the whole way across the sea. Cracks could open, the ice could be too thin, 
or it could shift unexpectedly beneath their feet. Knight had experienced firsthand the difficulties of ice. He would have known the dangers they faced. Regardless, the two men left final letters behind for Stephenson and their families. They took five dogs, who were also weakened by hunger, and a sled loaded with 700 pounds of supplies. Knight and Crawford left the camp on January 7, 1923, headed south. Ada, Gale, and Morer watched them go, then resumed their regular duties. Ada and Gale had become closer over the past few months, and so she probably didn't mind too much the quietness with Knight gone. Gale was good to her, enjoyed her stories, and even had learned some of her native language. Thirteen days later, Knight and Crawford returned to the camp, defeated by weather, ice, and their waning physical strength. They often stopped for entire days, and they had been forced at times to pull the sleds themselves, and had barely even made it off the island. The rough, rigid ice seemed determined to keep them there. When they finally reached the sea, it was no better. There was nothing to protect them from the Arctic wind. They were cold, with frozen faces, fingers, and toes. Not surprisingly, Knight's health worsened. They realized they couldn't make the trip. With their tails between their legs, Knight and Crawford had stumbled back to the winter camp. In the 13 days they had been gone, it had become clear that Knight was not well enough. But he was determined, and he decided the other three men would go, taking the dogs and sled, and leaving him with Ada. For Ada, this was the worst possible plan. She didn't like Knight, yet she would play no part in the decision. It was Knight's alone. He convinced the others that he could manage his illness, leading the others to believe that tending camp and hunting would be his responsibility. They had no idea how quickly those responsibilities would change hands. Had they any idea, they probably wouldn't have left the two alone. Assuring Ada he would come back for her, on January 29th, Gale departed the camp with Morer and Crawford. Their plans were to travel to Siberia and then to Nome. The temperature, which had hovered at 50 below zero, as they prepared, rose slightly, and the weather looked good as the men and dogs moved off. They took their diaries with them, with promises they would bring back a relief ship the following summer. Summer was months away. Knight was concerned about being left with Ada. He seemed to believe she wanted a white man for a husband. His diary still referred to her as the woman. He saw her as incompetent, temperamental, and for obvious reasons to him, her sex and her race, inferior. For her part, Ada began to mark off the days on the calendar since the other three men had left. Knight believed he could keep up his duties and his health for a couple of months until fresh game, which he desperately needed, became available. But within a week, he collapsed outside the hut and was forced to rely on Ada to bring him in. He told her about the possibility that he had scurvy. He hadn't seemed to want to accept this, but regardless of his feelings and hers, his fainting and subsequent bed rest changed the status of their relationship in a way he never would have wished upon either of them. Weakness forced him to accept his reliance on her. He was frightened, and so was Ada. Out of necessity, she did chores normally consigned to the men. Meanwhile, Knight's body craved citrus, which would have cured his scurvy. 
they had nothing in their stores. If he would have eaten raw meat or partially cooked meat, his scurvy may have lessened. He craved fresh meat, but he also believed that seal blubber would be sufficient. It wasn't. He thought that if he could not get strong enough to hunt, there would be no chance of acquiring game. Even the fox traps were too difficult for him to check. Ada didn't know how to use a rifle, and Knight didn't think she could learn. So while she left the camp, she carried a hunting knife, a weapon that provided little emotional comfort against the terror of meeting a bear. But she took it upon herself to search for food, traveling miles each day to check the fox traps. Eventually, she succeeded in trapping a fox. This would be the last fresh meat for some time, and it was cooked thoroughly rather than eaten half raw, which once again would have helped Knight scurvy. Neither she nor Knight knew that, it seems, or perhaps they didn't want to believe how ill he was, in spite of his craving for fresh meat. He didn't give her any instructions in regard to the cooking of the meat. Given time, Ada began to have more success with trapping, but Knight failed to improve. The spotting and lines on his body increased, and he had difficulty swallowing. He was thin, in pain when he breathed, and barely able to eat. In May, Ada wrote in broken English, I fry one biscuit for night. That is all he eats for nine days. He don't look like he is going to live long. He was completely bedridden, and Ada had to change his clothing and bedding as he was too weak to use the bathroom outdoors. In April, she wrote, I was today and haul sled load of wood, then chop wood. Didn't go to traps, and when I come in, build the fire... Night started cruel with me. I can't count how many times he started to cruel at me. Every time he say something against me and saying I wasn't good to him. He never stop and think about how much it's hard for woman to take four men's place. To work wood and to hunt for something to eat for him and to do waiting to do his bed and take the shade out for him. This is the worstest life I ever lived in this world. I'm not sure what shade or shyad means, but I'd like to think it means shit. It's unclear to me, but what is abundantly clear is that Ada, too, was suffering. Mentally, emotionally, and of course physically. She felt weak, too, and one of her eyes became infected to the point where she couldn't open it. In late winter, even the fox traps were empty, but she was able to recover from the infection and weakness while night continued to deteriorate. His body was wasting away. He could barely move. She took care of all his needs now, cleaning his bedding and trying to make him comfortable. He seemed to vacillate between anger at her and submission. Truly frightened and undoubtedly provoked at his ingratitude, she seemed resigned to death and wrote a will designating what she wanted done with her goods and where she wanted her son to go. Dispirited and sick, she spoke little with Knight, but rather developed the habit of reading the Bible that had belonged to Knight's grandfather. Her only other companion was the cat, Vic, who seemed to be doing fairly well. As the temperature rose in May and the birds began to return, Ada decided to learn to use the rifle. It was almost too heavy for her, so she came up with a prop for her shoulder as a partial shield against its power. Reduced to a bread diet at this point, 
it was very important that she learned to hunt. Her first kill was a gull which she made into a soup for night. She built a platform from which to watch for polar bears, which would have fed them for weeks, but she never succeeded in gathering sufficient courage to shoot one. She couldn't get those walruses either, but she built a small skin boat in the hopes of hunting the seals that could be heard offshore as the ice broke and melted. Knight could hardly eat, and Ada's hunting was inconsistent. When she did bring home meat, Knight couldn't eat it uncooked or really at all, so any hope of curing the disease was quickly disappearing. The weather raged through May and remained cold. Knight constantly shivered with the cold, and Ada tried helping him by warming bags filled with sand to ease the aches in his fragile body. She made cotton pillows for under him to help heal his bed sores. The end for him came quietly during the night of June 22, 1923. She wrote a note to record the death. Then she left Knight's body still resting on the bed where he died. She left the home they had shared since January and moved into a storage tent. She read Knight's Bible daily. He had given it to her as he lay ill. In the end, he had known he was dying and had expressed his gratitude for her. She fixed up her new residence as best she could, alone, and desperately hoped for a relief ship to come that summer. A week later, the polar bears arrived. Within days after Knight died, Ada met with some success in hunting ducks. She also killed her first seal, but she remained unwilling to hunt the bears. While in her tent, she sewed and processed the seal skins. She had taken the precaution, too, of drying and storing meat. Always hopeful, she sewed boots for Bennett and for herself, and as the ice melted away from the shore, she ate the last of the stored biscuits and watched for a ship. It was the third week of August. Night had been dead for nearly two months. A ship skirted the shoreline of Wrangell Island. In it were thirteen new colonists, replacements for the four men that the captain felt certain he would find. He and a few crew members went ashore near the original landing site and found a bottle with the names of the four men and the document claiming the island for Britain inside it. Moving on through foggy conditions towards a place named Doubtful Harbor, on the morning of August 20th, a crew member spotted a figure on the beach. In her shelter, Ada thought the rumbling sound was the groans of walrus, but the sound was constant and seemed to move closer. She roused herself from the warmth of the tent and went outside. She peered through the fog, and there, close to the shore, was the mast of a ship. Within minutes, a skin boat with a white man and some Inuit landed. As the figures disembarked and moved towards her, Ada realized she didn't know them. She had expected that when rescue came, her three companions would return for her. The crew didn't know that Gale, Crawford, and Morer had left the island. They had never been seen on the mainland. As they greeted her, Ada couldn't seem to grasp that the three men had died. She had assumed all along they were safe. She began to sob. Carrying her to the skin boat, Captain Noyce transported Ada to the ship. There he gave her coffee and asked for the story of what had happened. Still failing to grasp that Crawford, Gale, and Moore were never found, Ada found a sympathetic voice in Noyce, a man whose Arctic experience could easily conceive of how difficult such a journey would have been. 
At the camp that had been home to Ada, the tent appeared tattered and decrepit to the crew of the Donaldson. The canvas was shredded, the stove was crude, and the food supplies were nearly gone. Yet Ada had lived there, taking comfort in the company of a cat, her hopes resting on the sea. On August 21st, Lorne Knight was buried on Wrangell Island, and there he would always remain. Ada gave his diary to Captain Noyce, who proceeded to buy Ada's furs at a very low price and confiscated artifacts collected by the expedition, including mammoth ivory. Ada was allowed to keep the Bible. Now she thought only of going home and waited impatiently while the new colonists unloaded their supplies. When the boat finally departed, and as they steamed east, Noyce began to read Knight's and Ada's diaries. What he read would set in motion a controversy that would affect Ada profoundly. But safe on the ship, she didn't know that sensationalist reporting might hurt her in the future. Still not fully understanding why her companions were not alive, and having received little mail, she could only look forward to seeing Bennett, the son who she had left behind two years before. By August 31st, Ada was back home in Nome. Here, Noyce sent a telegram to Stephenson in which he disclosed the sad outcome of his rescue operation. Although first expressing shock, Stephenson's immediate reaction was a list of should-haves. There should have been enough game to hunt, and certainly the explorers should have been experienced enough to ensure their own survival. Stephenson continued to downplay and profess sadness over the loss of the four men, but at the same time, he didn't hesitate to seek out money-making opportunities. So while Stephenson spoke with the goal of further promoting his own plans, the four families of the young men were left to grieve. First described as a heroine, Ada was in the news beyond the boundaries of Nome, and requests for interviews soon overcame this quiet woman. She didn't want to share her painful memories, and hoping to receive better treatment for Bennett away from Nome, that autumn she and her son left for Seattle. There she would continue to be hounded by reporters who had managed to find her. She hadn't wanted to talk to anyone, but when John Knight, the now-dead Lorne Knight's father, knocked repeatedly at her door, she finally greeted him, but talked only a short time. In the brief conversation, she told John Knight that Captain Noyce had taken her diary and never paid her for its use. She made it clear she was only speaking to John Knight because he was Lorne's relative. Captain Noyce published a sensational take on the tragedy. He had picked out the juicy bits, leaving facts by the wayside. He accused Ada of being a prostitute, of going to the island for sexual services and not as a cook or seamstress. This, he said, was the reason behind her refusal to work. The men themselves were supposedly not interested in her for sex, but only wanted her as a seamstress. His story was inconsistent. He told a little more accurate account to some of his associates, but he knew that his tale would sell more. There was no evidence of prostitution. In the pursuit of turning harrowing adventures into lucrative tales, adventurers often sought to capitalize on their experiences. The promise of a substantial income was a tempting prospect. In this vein, Stephenson, eyeing the potential windfall, leveraged legal threats against Noyce to obtain the diaries and papers from the ill-fated expedition. The documents, however, arrived with conspicuous omissions. Pages were missing, and certain entries had been crossed out. 
Noyce blamed Ada for this. In 1924, Ada crossed paths with Stephenson in Seattle. Confronted with accusations that she had tampered with Knight's diary, she vehemently denied any wrongdoing. Yet the controversy continued as Captain Noyce later launched an article directly attacking Ada's character. He claimed that Knight had starved while Ada thrived, accusing her of mistreating the dying man. In response, Ada felt cornered. She opened up to the L.A. Times, sharing her side of the story. Around this same time, she also fell pregnant by a man who she had met on the boat ride from Nome to Seattle. He had become abusive toward her, weary and wanting to return to Nome, but feeling like she would be hounded there and needing to get away from the abusive father of her second child. Ada fled to Spokane, telling no one of her destination. She effectively vanished from public view. Two years later, she surfaced on Kodiak Island, battling tuberculosis herself, while her sons resided in a mission school near Seward. Ada's journey remained fraught with hardships. Marrying twice more, both unions ended within months. By the time her second son, Billy, turned nine, she had managed to bring her children to Nome, where she eked out a living through hunting and trapping. Later, relocating to Anchorage, she embraced various employment opportunities. Her life had been a series of battles against the odds. From her early years as a child, facing the loss of her father with her mother absent, to the challenging survival on Rangel Island, and the marriages that ultimately dissolved. Her story was one of a perpetual struggle with self-sufficiency. In my opinion, she was an extremely strong and tough woman. In 1983, at the age of 84, the final chapter in Ada's life came to an end. Well, that wraps up this Twisted Travel story. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you did and you're feeling generous, I would love a good rating and review on iTunes or on Facebook, uh, Instagram, wherever you find Twisted Travel and True Crime social media. There are links to all of those in the show notes, and that is also where you can become a Patreon if you like. I would love to have your support, and I'd like you to have a very happy holiday. I'd like to wish you fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds. Stay warm and cozy.